Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin on this Memorial Day with a highly decorated combat veteran who was awarded two Silver Stars, two Legion of Merits, two Bronze Stars and two Purple Hearts and spent eight years as a prisoner of war in North Vietnam and is now a peace and justice activist with Veterans for Peace. Joining us is Dr. Phil Butler, who is now engaged in trying to rehabilitate the 6,900 veterans in California prisons out of the over 180,000 vets in prisons across America. By placing veterans in close proximity to each other in what are called hubs, camaraderie and pride and purpose is rebuilt, and while much remains to be done to address homelessness and addiction in the veteran community, those who have been incarcerated now have a better chance at rebuilding their lives and restoring their place in a society they fought to defend. Then we'll look into the changes underway in the evangelical community, which has become the cornerstone of support for Israel in the United States. A recent poll found a dramatic shift in attitudes among young evangelicals whose support for Israel dropped from 75% to 34% between 2018 and 2021. Shibli Telhami, the Anwar Sadat Professor for Peace and Development at the University of Maryland, whose latest book is The Peace Puzzle, America's Quest for Arab-Israeli Peace from 1989 to 2011, joins us to discuss the aftermath of the latest war between Hamas and Israel and what looks like the end of the Netanyahu era. Then finally we will speak with Leah Garrett, a professor at Hunter College and the author of the new book, X-Troop, The Secret Jewish Commandos of World War II. She joins us to discuss her article at CNN on Memorial Day, Remember This Secret Troop of Jewish Commandos from World War II and how a group of stateless refugees from the Nazis became highly trained special operations soldiers. And joining us now is Dr. Philip Butler, who's a 1961 graduate of the United States Naval Academy and a former light attack carrier pilot. In 1965, he was shot down over North Vietnam, where he spent eight years as a prisoner of war. He is a highly decorated combat veteran who was awarded two Silver Stars, two Legion of Merits, two Bronze Stars and two Purple Hearts. And he completed his naval career in 1981 as a professor of management at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. And today, Phil is a peace and justice activist with Veterans for Peace. Welcome to Background Briefing, Philip Butler. Thank you, Ian. Appreciate that. Well, thanks for joining us on this Memorial Day, uh, Phil. And... What's not mentioned in your bio, which is pretty impressive, is that you are now working uh, with the California prison system. Uh, you spend a lot of time visiting veterans in prison in California. And tell us about the ceremony that took place on Friday. Okay. Well, uh, first of all, I'll say that uh, some people may think that after a guy spent eight years as a prisoner of war in Vietnam, the last place he'd want to go is to a prison. So he must be a little nuts, a little off his rocker. But uh, actually, for the last 10 years, um, I and a, and a comrade, a veteran, uh, who's also, he wasn't a POW, but he is a combat veteran from Vietnam. And uh, cl close, to, close to my age, just a couple of years uh, younger, but uh, Fletch and I have been going down to Soledad State Prison, uh, where uh, part of the prison is made up of a California training, 
facility, which is uh, for, you know, guys that are a little more honorable. They're level two prisoners, uh, as opposed to the very worst of the worst, which are level four in our state. But uh, Fletch and I have been going down and just actually lending our time out as coaches and mentoring uh, to um, to incarcerated veterans that are down there in CTF. And uh, it turns out that there are, last count was 6,900 veterans uh, that are incarcerated in the California uh, Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, CDCR. So 6,900 of them. And there's been lots of talk and lots of ups and downs about doing something with these veterans, but it's finally, CDCR has finally decided that they're going to split up all 6,900 of these incarcerated veterans and put them into three different prisons up and down the, the state. So there'll be one in the north part, one in the central part of the state, and one in the southern part of, of our state. And so we'll have, uh, you know, a couple thousand in, in each of those uh, prisons. And, and uh, so Fletch and I uh, went down, since we've been working with this group, we went down to, to Soledad uh, Prison, where they had the first in the nation, what they're calling it, the Veterans Hub ribbon-cutting ceremony. That is that our group of veterans down there formed the first group of veterans in a, in a hub. They're calling it a hub. It's a large yard. It's kind of hard to describe, but it's a very big area of the uh, total total prison population down there. And so yesterday there were like over 200 incarcerated veterans, and they p- produced a ceremony and, of course, had spe- speakers. Uh, the, the keynote speaker was uh, our Jimmy Panetta, he's our congressman from this district, and just a wonderful guy and a great supporter of veterans, having been a combat veteran himself. So anyway, the uh, this is a ribbon-cutting ceremony, and Fletch and I drove down, I drove down, and it was quite a bit of walking and sitting through the through the process of the ceremony, and, and uh, then of course, meeting and greeting and talking with people and meeting people afterwards and then finally getting back home some four or five hours later. So uh, so I was a tired, tired cowboy when I came home from that thing. But, but boy, was it, was it, was it in just wonderful to see these, these veterans. And they're, they're just it's such a great idea to put all of our incarcerated veterans together in these... In these three hubs, there'll be a veterans hub in each section of the of the state, and I think that uh, you know once they're together as veterans, they really oversee each other and keep each other shaped up and and motivated, you know, to become um, much better much better people when they're finally released. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Philip Butler, who's a 1961 graduate of the United States Naval Academy and a former light attack carrier pilot. In 1965, he was shot down over North Vietnam, where he spent eight years as a prisoner of war. 
He's a highly decorated combat veteran who was awarded two Silver Stars, two Legion of Merits, two Bronze Stars and two Purple Hearts. And he completed his naval career in 1981 as a professor of management at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. And today, Phil is a peace and justice activist with Veterans for Peace. And as he's just pointed out to us, he's doing a lot of work with veterans in the California prison system. And what's the overall population in the United States of veterans in prison? I heard it was something like 180,000. What what figure do you have? That that sounds about right to me, and I would think so. Uh, California is the largest state with the largest population, and so we have 6,900 of them here. But I, I would think that maybe close to 200,000. That's just a, a wild guess on my part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no, I just looked up the statistic, but they're from 2012, so it, it's hard to know what the real yeah. number is today. Is there an explanation, Phil, in terms of why this number of vets are in prison? Because we hear a lot about homeless vets. I mean, here at the VA here in Los Angeles, in West Los Angeles, the VA is a big property, and all along the side of the property on, on the sidewalk, a rows and rows of tents for homeless vets. So you already have this hideous phenomenon of homelessness amongst vets. So it's not surprising that you find a lot of vets in prison because they're living such a hard life. Uh, yeah, that, that's true. Uh, here in um, in our Monterey area, uh, we have a, a veterans uh, center where they can come and get uh, uh, get work on their drug addiction or alcohol addiction, and uh, they can a lot of them can can have a home, and they get classes in and how to be a better person. And now, some of these veterans that uh, Flush and I have been working with uh, in the <clears throat> down south of us in Soledad Prison. Uh, have been released and come up to this veterans center up here in Monterey, and they're some of the some of the very best of the best of the people that that come up here and try to get jobs. And in other words, they they really have learned their lessons and and really understand you know rules and regulations and how to abide by them and how to be much be a much better uh, father, son, friend neighbor and uh in, in our society so yeah the homeless pro- the homeless problem is, is huge it's huge for veterans it's huge for for all of our people throughout our nation and one of the things about homeless veterans is they they have to be carefully screened uh before you know they're they move into a, a veterans sponsored facility because there are unfortunately an awful lot of people who uh, claim to be veterans and and are not. I know just just as a uh, as being a former prisoner of war, it's, it's always boggled my mind. But uh, one of our f- former POWs, who is a very dear friend of mine, has been keeping track of all of the people who be- are outed that are claiming to have been prisoners of war and never were. And there are, there are people at all stages of life. I think the last 
the last number that Mike had of uh, people who had been outed who were making a name for themselves as a former prisoner of war, there's something like 8,000 of them in the, in the United States. So that's, that's twice as many as, as there were us than were actually POWs. <laughs> so it's, it, it's a strange deal. That, uh, that sort of thing. Well, the, probably the number of people that that say they are veterans when they're not is probably several times larger than the 8,000. They say they were POWs. I mean, oh, it's weird, yeah, that, isn't it? Sure, that runs into the tens of maybe even 100,000. It really, right. it really is. But the reality is that we have a lot of veterans in pain. And is there a through line? Is there a connection here? to PTSD and other things that haven't been adequately treated that would lead to so many vets getting into alcohol and drugs and then perhaps into crime and ending up in prison. Absolutely. And uh, I've talked to many of them uh, down in Soledad prison, just in the prison I go to, yeah. There certainly are lots of them. I would not have any idea what the numbers are, but uh, it's just, just part of the process to to get these guys to to uh, grow out of this stuff and and become good people again. You know, at some point in time, they they did their very best for our nation. They signed up for some military that where they could have lost their lives or been wounded or, or whatever, and so a lot of them came home damaged in some way or another. And... Uh, that's why uh, they, a lot of them wind up in prison after having been drug addicts and alcohol addiction. And so then maybe the quickest way for them to get money for their addiction is to rob somebody. It's, it's, a, it's a very sad situation. But that what we try to do in the uh, Veterans Hub down in Soledad Prison is we're, we're trying to rehabilitate these guys and the best way that they can be rehabilitated is to get them to look at themselves from the inside out and become a better person. Yeah, but don't we owe them something if they went and fought and were wounded and had their comrades die for us and our freedoms, and if they come back damaged, isn't it our obligation to try and undo the damage? Yeah, you'd think so, but we've done exactly the opposite because, you know, you take you take a guy like myself. Let's say I I have a a purple heart and I, uh, you know, or or what have you, and so I'm receiving some some my uh, benefits from the Veterans Administration. If I if I get into a California prison, all of those benefits are taken away from me for the whole time that I'm a prisoner but if i get to a certain level as a prisoner i'm allowed to have 10 percent of my benefits and i and the terrible part of it is so many of these guys and this is this has been uh this is truth this is this is absolutely the truth that some of the guys who came out of our prison system and went back to get reinstated with their with their uh, va money that they should have been getting while they were in prison but they had it taken away from them and they find out that the money was taken by the VA and they did something else with it so they couldn't get their 
their benefits that they had earned. It just it just brings tears to your eyes, you know, the the way these guys are being being treated and gals too, men and women. So, what can be done? I mean, is it just a question of getting better people? To run the VA, I mean, we've had so many problems here at this Westwood VA facility in Los Angeles, where so many of the the bureaucrats running it are end up in prison. I mean, uh, it's just shocking. It seems like there's really a need to clean house in the VA. It is shocking, and you know, the VA is a mixed bag. It's like uh, wherever you go in the country, it depends on which which VA you're talking about. Uh, here in the Monterey area, we have a VA clinic, which is associated with the, with the VA hospital, uh, you know, north of us here. And But uh, we're in a smaller area. But our VA clinic, uh, it does a really good job for us veterans here. But uh, sometimes uh, it does some things that are kind of, kind of weird that we have to get on top of. Like we've been fighting tooth and nail to to get a pharmacy in our clinic down here in Monterey, and um, looks like finally after about ten years of fighting the system, we're going to get a pharmacy here where some of the guys who who are crippled and and unable to travel or go anywhere, they can get their medications here at our at our VA clinic. So it's just it's just it's stuff that uh, that you it's it's a country we live in, Ian. <laughs> I right. swear. I know. Well, the VA health system is, I guess, a separate issue, and from the VA itself, the bureaucracy and the health system seems yeah. to have. Oh yeah. Well, Phil, I thank you so much for joining us here on this Memorial Day. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, Ian. I always enjoy the. To talk with you. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Philip Butler, who's a 1961 graduate of the United States Naval Academy and a former light attack carrier pilot. In 1965, he was shot down over North Vietnam, where he spent eight years as a prisoner of war. He's a highly decorated combat veteran who was awarded two silver stars, two Legion of Merits, two bronze stars, and two purple hearts. And he completed his Navy career in 1981 as a professor of management at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. And today, Phil is a peace and justice activist with Veterans for Peace. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking at a recent poll that found a dramatic shift in attitudes among young evangelicals whose support for Israel dropped from 75% to 34% between 2018 and 2021.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Shibri Talhami, who's the Anwar Sadat Professor of Peace and Development at the University of Maryland College Park and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He has served as advisor to the U.S. mission at the United Nations and more recently served on the Iraq Study Group and as a senior advisor to the U.S. Department of State. And he's the author of The Stakes, America in the Middle East, The World Through Arab Eyes, Arab Public Opinion and the Reshaping of the Middle East and The Peace Puzzle. America's Quest for Arab-Israeli Peace, 1989 to 2011. And he has an article at the Brookings Institution, as Israel increasingly relies on U.S. evangelicals for support, younger ones are walking away what polls show. Welcome to Background Briefing, Shibli Tilhami. My pleasure. And let's look at this poll, the University of Maryland Critical Issues poll, that finds that there's been a dramatic shift in attitudes between 2018 and 2021 for support of Israel among young evangelicals has dropped from 75% to 34%. Now, apparently within the right-wing Israeli political establishment, you have the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Ron Dermer, arguing that Israel should spend more of its energy reaching out to passionate American evangelicals than to Jews who are, according to him, disproportionately among our critics. Now, that's brought a rebuke from Israel's former consul general to New York, Danny Dayan, who said that our embassy in the United States capital has invested most of its energy in the relationship with conservatives, Republicans, evangelicals, and a certain type of Jew only. So there's something going on within the Jewish American community here in the United States, surely. Yeah. Um, uh, first, um, uh, let me uh, clarify. Um, the, I have been doing polling um, in the U.S. for three decades. And uh, in uh, the last uh, five, six years, I've also been doing a lot among evangelicals for a book I am writing on evangelicals, politics in Israel. But the poll you cited uh, from uh, the recent poll of that showed change from 2018 to 21 was actually a North Carolina, uh, University of North Carolina poll uh, that showed a, a dramatic drop um, in support for Israel among uh, young evangelicals um, from uh, 75% to 34%. However, what I did in the article is analyze our own polls because you've been doing far more than that uh, to show that in fact this has been the trend uh, dating back at least to 2015, uh, just the pre-Trump era. Because I started, I did a very large poll in 2015 as Trump was running for president, uh, and then uh, you know about three years uh, later, a uh, couple of years into the Trump presidency. I did another poll to see um, where things stood. And so what we found, even prior to this recent poll that showed a drop from 2018 to uh, 2021, uh, was that there was already a huge uh, shift taking place from 2015 to 2018, where uh, the uh, uh, support for Israel among young evangelicals, in, in our poll that means people under 35, um, dropped by half. Uh, and then what, we, what also is interesting is that in the same period, uh, you had a support for the Palestinians 
increased dramatically. Almost most of that loss that came from supporting Israel went directly into supporting for the Palestinians, making the support for Palestinians among young uh, evangelicals uh, roughly equivalent to that of the support of Israel. So it's really dramatic shift. And um, what was interesting about this is that it's not your typical, uh, you know, generational shift, because I compared it to shifts that took place um, among other groups, um, non-evangelicals, uh, non-evangelical Americans. Of course, typically, in our demographics, uh, we have showed that younger Americans tend to be less supportive of Israel than older Americans anyway. But this gap within the evangelical community between young and old is significantly wider and is widening further. So it was wider in 2015 and became much wider in 2018. And this uh, North Carolina, University of North Carolina poll uh, shows that it continued to decline. So it's dramatic shift uh, that has taken place. Now, there are a couple of reasons why this is really, really important. Um, you, you mentioned, can, can I interrupt you for a moment sure. just just to find out was this poll, this North Carolina poll, done after this recent war over Gaza? Uh, no, I believe this was done. If I if I remember correctly, the dates I don't have them in front of me. This is my my own poll, but I believe it was done prior to that. So I well, then, then the that, drop then the drop could be even greater then, right? Yes, and I'm about actually to do exactly that. So I'm doing another poll. Uh, in uh, in the coming weeks to uh, see whether there's any drop um, in the support for Israel coming out of the the Gaza war, so we'll we'll be able to tell uh, from the from, you know sometime in 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 June uh, whether that's happening as well. Um, so it's really hard to tell. And, and but but what's clear in all this is that um, you know um, we've we've traced. That Democrats were becoming less supportive of Israel, dramatically less supportive of Israel. Uh, we have, we've, I've been documenting that for years. I've written about it, uh, you know, uh, multiple times. Uh, articles, uh, uh, you know, uh, op-eds, uh, opinion pieces, uh, documenting that this shift had been taken place, and we've seen it, of course, now reflecting itself even in congressional politics. So that had been, uh, you know. Uh, identified, and that's why Dermer uh, was very uncomfortable. We know that his um, regime, that is his, when he served as ambassador to Benjamin Netanyahu, prime minister of Israel, uh, they focused mostly on Republicans, not just evangelicals, but the, you know, clearly they were associated with the Republican Party far more than Democrats, uh, and because in part, that's where the support was coming, uh, that they were lo- losing support from the Democrats. So this particular statement by Derma, which took a lot of people by surprise and, and, and uh, you know, he got all this uh, negative reaction to it, um, uh, is, does not come out of a, a vacuum. So there, there, there's an increasing reliance on the support from the evangelicals. If it's true that this trend will hold... Um, that you have evangelicals moving away, uh, that really raises a question uh, to the Israeli Israeli right wing who's um, increasingly relying on this evangelical support. And again, I'm speaking with Shibli Talhami, who is the Anwar Sadat Professor of Peace and Development at the University of Maryland, and he's a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and has served as an advisor to the U.S. Mission of the United Nations on the Iraq Study Group and as a senior advisor to the Department of State. 
and he's the author of The Stakes, America in the Middle East, The World Through Arab Eyes, Arab Public Opinion and Reshaping the Middle East, and The Peace Puzzle, America's Quest for Arab-Israeli Peace, 1989 to 2011. And he has an article at the Brookings Institution, as Israel increasingly relies on U.S. evangelicals for support, younger ones are walking away, what polls show. So to go back a little in history, the support for Israel through, for example, AIPAC was always incredibly strong in the Democratic Party. But then under Shamir, Shamir decided that they should reach out to the evangelicals. He felt that they would be the more reliable of the Americans. So in reaching out to the evangelicals who are on clearly the, the backbone of the Republican Party, in effect, Shamir was doubling the support for Israel from the support that AIPAC had through the Democrats and then, then with this extra support coming through the evangelicals. So now you're telling us that support for Israel is waning amongst Democrats. Is that is that So that's the, the shift that's underway. Well, there's no question that the shift among Democrats is waning. That we know. I mean, that, that has been, you know, even uh, other polls, it's not just mine. Uh, uh, for example, the Gallup poll showed that, uh, you know, 53% of Democrats want to pressure Israel more. Uh, to advance peace in the Middle East. So we've we've gotten this uh, shift taking place among Democrats for some time. The question is whether there's this deep shift among uh, evangelicals that seem to be really dramatic um, and not just explained by the uh, generational difference that's taken place among uh, young uh, uh, young uh, evangelicals, and and I think there's so much evidence now that's for sure taken place. The question is what explains it. And by the way, the the support, the reliance on evangelicals, uh, starts with Menachem Begin when he rose and became prime minister in the mid 70s, and then he appealed to evangelicals and reached out, and there was an extensive reached to evangelical leaders, including Jerry Falwell, uh, and then the formation of the moral majority that took place in the late 70s, uh, which which uh, was um, already had elements of uh, kind of cultivation uh, from Israel. So evangelical leaders had, um, you know, worked closely with the right-wing Israeli government, dating back to Menachem Begin. And they found Begin to be more appealing because he appealed to biblical language and, and religion as opposed to the secular labor party pro before him. But really uh, now with, as I said, extensive direct cultivation that took place and over the years that expanded and certainly expanded uh, during Netanyahu's year as prime minister. Now, the question is, what is driving this particular shift among young evangelicals? And that's, of course, something that we have to... Um, you know, look into very deeply. But I have some thoughts on it, and most of them uh, are, um, you know, I think grounded in some uh, preliminary evidence. Um, uh, I happen to think that uh, Trump, um, in essence, um, you know, um, uh, exacerbated the uh, generational divide among evangelicals. There's evidence that uh, young evangelicals were far more uh, disgusted with Trump and the relationship that uh, existed between evangelical leaders and Trump. There's quite a few uh, episodes of, of protest among young evangelicals of that relationship. Uh, Trump himself had um, 
obviously embraced Israel like no other president in the past, and the Israeli government embraced him uh, as well in full. Uh, and we do know that in polling that we have done among evangelicals, that although they t tended as a whole to support Israel, they still thought that Trump was more pro-Israel than they were. That, you know, some people think Trump was doing this for them, but actually uh, uh, they thought that Trump being too pro-Israel for them, more pro-Israel than they, than they were. And there was evidence of that in the polling that we have conducted. So that's one theme. The second is I think there's a good reason to believe uh, that um, young uh, evangelicals have been more focused on the theme of social justice, which is more traditional uh, in Christian uh, movements. Uh, and that had been uh, possibly a function in part of uh, the work of progressive evangelical organizations that have actually tried to reach out to them, and, and they may have been extremely effective, but also uh, as a function of all the issues, um, social justice issues and and um, uh, social, broader social issues, even climate change, a lot of people have written uh, uh, about how young evangelicals were, were attracted to, you know, uh, uh, the themes of fighting family separation on the U.S.-Mexican border, the climate change issue, uh, various progressive causes. Uh, and we do know that um, uh, social issue, social justice had become a focal point for many. And in that sense, the plight of Palestinians increasingly became viewed through that social justice prism, particularly with the rise of Black Lives Matter after uh, the, the, the murder of, of Floyd. And so I think um, there, there are multiple reasons that might be accounting uh, for this deeper shift among younger evangelicals that go beyond the generational difference. So just in the last uh, couple of minutes then, uh, you, we mentioned earlier that these polls that you've we've been talking about happened before the recent war with Palestine and, and over Gaza. And of course one of the most significant things that happened was the eruptions of intercommunal violence between... Arab Israelis and Jewish Israelis, a lot of vigilantes attacking each other on both sides. So there's now a possibility of a new, of a new government forming. So one of the theories about this war was that Netanyahu was allowed it all to happen in order to stay in power because he doesn't want to go to jail. The other explanation may be that he was just negligent because it was pretty clear that these provocative acts at Al-Aqsa were going to lead to trouble. How do you see it? Some people thought that Netanyahu would benefit from this recent war, but it doesn't look like he has. Yeah, no, it's a good point. So just let me just first, um, uh, with reference to young evangelicals, I want to make one more point because it's a very important one. Uh, that one reason why they may be different from older evangelicals on the question of Israel is that they're more diverse. Uh, in our polls, we show that there's a, a significant um, decline in the percentage of whites among uh, young evangelicals, a big gap between, uh, you know, uh, uh, young evangelicals or evangelicals in terms of racial distribution, ethnic distribution, and white evangelicals tend to be far more pro-Israel than non-white evangelicals. So there's a kind of a shift, a demographic shift uh, taking place in the evangelical community, and that itself is interesting on the question of Israel because Hispanics and African Americans 
and even Asian Americans tend to be somewhat more sympathetic with the Palestinians and the rest of the population. So that keep that in mind. But the Gaza, you're you're right, Ian. I mean, I think the the question was, the, the you know, first um, uh, Netanyahu looked like he was the political winner. Um, why? Because um, immediately, if his aim was to prevent his opponents from forming government, he succeeded, made it impossible on them. And, and, and obviously, they, he delayed that. That was imminent. Um, uh, and so he was, and that probably was part of his intent, that he benefited uh, from the escalation. But now that people look at it after it ended, and they see that there was no gain. Um, in fact, if anything, it uh, it uh, burdened to focus the injustice of occupation and what's happening in Gaza and uh, backlash against uh, Israel in ways that we have not seen in America. Particularly, we have not seen that in years. Look at the coverage, whether it's in New York Times or the Washington Post, or the fact that you have the New York Times, uh, uh, you know, put out the picture of 63 children uh, who were killed right on the front page with their stories um, to humanize, which obviously, uh, to their credit, to humanize this and not look at them as numbers. Uh, that is something new. And I think so now that the assessment is that this was not beneficial strategically Israel in any shape or form, you have a backlash. And and obviously uh, now it looks like his opponents may in the end be able to form a government uh, even despite the Gaza war. It remains to be seen. Uh, that's an open question. Uh, but um, I think the 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 issue that you pointed to, um, which is that the violence wasn't just between Israel and the Palestinians in the West Bank or or the Palestinians in Gaza, that Palestinian citizens of Israel were drawn into this fight with provocation from the Israeli uh, far right. Um, uh, in uh, we have seen confrontations um, in in across the board in mixed cities, in cities where uh, people have had amicable relations, even if there was structural inequality, a city like Haifa, where people basically um, had a good amicable relationship, even, uh, you know, under the circumstances, uh, different from other uh, places, they've had this confrontation. Uh, and, and that's really, really uh, profoundly new. It doesn't mean that it can't be overcome, uh, but right now it, it generates a new a new kind of environment where um, it might be harder to go back. Uh, and I think that the Palestinian Israelis are asserting themselves in ways that we had not seen in the past in terms of uh, now speaking out against the structural inequality that they feel. And and that it creates a, a, a new dynamic and also a new challenge for any Israeli government. Shibri Talhami, I thank you so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I mean, speak with Shibri Talhami, who's the Anwar Sadat Professor of Peace and Development at the University of Maryland and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He serves as an advisor to the U.S. mission to the United Nations and to the Iraq Study Group and as a senior advisor to the Department of State. He's the author of The Stakes, America in the Middle East, The World Through Arab Ives, Arab Public Opinion and the Reshaping of the Middle East, and The Peace Puzzle, America's Quest for Arab-Israeli Peace, 1989 to 2011. And he has an article at the Brookings Institution, as Israel increasingly relies on U.S. evangelicals for support. Younger ones are walking away. What polls show? We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the extraordinary story of how a group of stateless refugees from the Nazis became highly trained British special operations soldiers. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now on Memorial Day is Leah Garrett, who's the Director of Jewish Studies Center and Director of Hebrew and Jewish Studies, as well as a professor at Hunter College. She's the author of four books, including Young Lines, How Jewish Authors Reinvented the American War Novel, and her latest book, Just Out, is X Troop. The Secret Jewish Commandos of World War II. And she has an article at CNN on Memorial Day, Remember This Secret Troop of Jewish Commandos from World War II. Welcome to Background Briefing, Leah Garrett. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Leah. And of course, today in Memorial Day, we remember the war dead from the many wars, World War II being the kind of virtuous war, the ones since then are a little more questionable. But one of the more touching characters, I mean, the characters in your book are just extraordinary. The idea that these German-Jewish and Austrian-Jewish refugees escaped from Nazi Germany, were interned in the UK, and then Churchill decided to use them as commandos. And then they were sent back into Europe in D-Day and before D-Day and fought all the way through to the liberation of Europe. And Griffith, of course, a CO, was killed, what, just a few days before the end of World War II? Yes, that's right. Yeah, and that's kind of, that's particularly heartbreaking. And and you've got a picture in the book of the, the buried in the woods in Germany with a, a cross instead of a Star of David. So in terms of casualties... Given what the extraordinary bravery of these men, they they actually had didn't have that many casualties, and one of them actually went on that aborted raid to Dieppe, which was well before D-Day. Um, part of the reason that's so interesting about writing this book was that all of the men in the story who I write about um, historically had to go and undergo these extraordinary transformations, because as you pointed out. These were almost all German and Austrian Jewish refugees who had come to England on their own as teenagers on kinder transport when their parents knew that it was the only way to get them out of the country because there was no options for Jews anywhere to go except for some kids were being taken to England. And as part of sort of the transformation that they had to undertake in order to join the commando unit was they all had to take, they all had about 10 minutes once they were selected to take on fake British names, fake fake British personas that would explain why they had German accents. And also they were all given dog tags that said Church of England. So as part of this transformation into these British commandos, because their their first commanding officer, Brian Hilton Jones, was a non-Jewish Welshman who knew that if any of these men were captured, they would be um, shot immediately as commandos, as Germans, and as Jews. And any family that might still be alive over there would be rounded up and probably killed as well. So they all had to take on these personas. And so the reason that Griffith is buried under the cross in the final days of the war, and he was their second uh, commanding officer, was the cross was there because his dog tags say Church of England. And I read um, the quotation of one of his commanding officers who was part of a different um, commando unit that he was with temporarily. And none of them had a clue who these men really wore. He said something something like at at his 
stark funeral in the woods, that this was sort of the bravest and the best that we have, not realizing that the we was not that any of these men were actually British. They were all taking on assumed identities, which is extraordinary. Um, and it was only after the war that through the actions of some Jewish military organizations that some of those crosses have been uh, switched over to Stars of David, but not all of them. It depended on what the families wanted. And as for the mortality rates, um, it's pretty extraordinary considering that these men were the tip of the spear in all the commando units they were set up with because the British quickly realized that these guys were way too valuable to have fight as their own separate troop because, you know, a, a bomb could wipe them all out. So that once we have the D-Day landings, all of them are parceled out in groups of three and four to different uh, commando units um, that already exist as sort of attachments to them to be at the front to capture and interrogate Germans. Um, so they're all, one of them wrote in one of his, um, in his autobiography where other soldiers were, were drawing straws to see who got left behind. We were drawing straws for whoever got to do the most dangerous missions. So I think part of why they were so extraordinarily successful and their casualty rates were, while high were not higher was because they all underwent an incredibly intense commando training and counterintelligence training in Wales before the war. And also because they were determined that the clock was ticking and they had to beat the Nazis before the Nazis killed every single family member alive. So for them, unlike other um, soldiers, this was totally and completely personal for them. They had to win this war because if they didn't win this war, then um, it would mean that maybe their sister, who might be the last one left hiding in Paris, would be killed. So it's for both of those reasons. Um, as well that, that it's such a unique story too. But just one one final point on it. They also um, had one of the highest rates of any allied unit in the Second World War for getting battlefield commissions, which were very rare at this point in the war. Um, so they were, um, they were exemplary soldiers and commandos. And fortunately, a number of them were recognized for that during the war itself. But in terms of relatives back behind the Nazi rule in Europe. Nothing is more extraordinary than the story of Manfred Gans, who literally rescues his own parents from the Treasonstad concentration camp, which was under the control of the Russians at the time. And that is an amazing story. It just absolutely takes your breath away. Yeah, I was very lucky because when I wrote the book, I got to know a lot of the commando children. And I also got to know some of the commandos themselves who were still alive when I wrote the book. And I decided that one of the three men I would focus heavily on would be Monfred Gans, whose nom de gore was Fred Gray, because remember, they had to all change their names. And at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, there's a diary he kept, which and, and, and the book tells the story in his own words because I wanted to sort of give it back to him in that section of the book. But when the war is underway, he was he 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 was raised in an Orthodox Jewish family in Germany. And his parents as uh, had to make the horrific decision as that many Jewish families had to make to send their teenage son alone over to the UK, which was taking kids at this point. Um, and once the war starts, he discovers that his parents have been found out they were hiding in the Netherlands and they were ratted out and they were captured and they were sent to Bergen-Belsen. 
And he, he already knew that the war for him was completely personal, but this is even clearer to him now when this happens. And he makes a decision that he's going to beat the Nazis not only to better the world and to stop their horrific regime, but also because he's got to get his parents. And so during the war itself, he's one of the most extraordinarily heroic and efficient warriors that the British have on their side. And then in the final days of the war, he finds out that his parents have now been transferred from Bergen-Belsen to Terzenstadt concentration camp in Czechoslovakia. And he makes the decision um, that even though, though the war hasn't ended, so it's the day before the war end, ends that they agree to give him a Jeep, he's going to drive through Germany and that apocalyptic hellscape that's incredibly dangerous with, you know, marauding troops and refugees and GIs and Russians and, you know, every, every, everybody's on the road. and it's Right, and the werewolves too, right? And werewolves, yeah. Werewolves were the sort of Germans who were, were going to do terrorism uh, against the Allies because they didn't want the end of the Nazi regime. So it was incredibly dangerous and he, did, he didn't care. He wrote in letters home to his girlfriend, who later became his wife, I, I have a mission. And that was what he said, I have a mission. And he gets there, and you can read the book, because I, I, I give it over to his words for this one chapter in the book, because I had the diary about it. But he actually um, is able to find his parents. It's extraordinary. But he wasn't the only one. Another fellow who was really important, um, Ron Gilbert, and the denazification efforts after the war, because they all work in the denazification efforts after the war. He also, um, I didn't really go into it in much detail in the book, but he also decides he has to rescue his sister. And he ends up um, during the war itself, driving to Paris and finding her and hiding. So they were fighting on two fronts. They were fighting sort of as, as sort of, you know, in these personas as British commandos. So they were fighting hard and fierce as British commandos, but they were also fighting personally as Jewish um, refugees from Germany and Austria. And they were incredibly effective at it. I mean, the strange thing about writing this book is I actually got to write a book about an unknown story of World War II, which is very rare. That's also incredibly optimistic. A story about the Holocaust and World War II that's very, very optimistic because it's about these young men who are teenagers who get to fight back effectively and, and win. So... And again, I'm speaking with Leah Garrett, who's the director of the Jewish Studies Center and director of Hebrew and Jewish Studies, as well as professor at Hunter College. She's the author of four books, including Young Lions, How Jewish Authors Reinvented the American War Novel. And her latest book just out is X Troop, The Secret Jewish Commander to World War II. And she has an article at CNN on Memorial Day, Remember This Secret Troop of Jewish Commandos from World War II. So, but in terms of the contemporary audience, the fact that you teach at Hunter College, and it's a very diverse group of students that you teach, and many of them are the dreamers, and you make the point that there is a connection there because the dreamers, you know, they've left their parents, and many of them are there in, in countries that are not necessarily welcoming them and they've been attacked, of course, under the Trump administration and distrusted. And a similar fate of these uh, Jewish refugees that became commandos, they they were interned as enemy aliens. Yeah, I, I, um, I was asked by CNN to write an editorial and I, I knew I wanted to write about Hunter College and about the Dreamers. And I also wanted to write about the X Troop because I got extremely lucky about three years ago. I was um, teaching, I was a professor overseas and I got hired to come to Hunter College. And when I got there, one of the first um, 
things I read about Hunter College online was that our incredible president of Hunter College, President Jennifer Rabb, had just um, raised a bunch of funds to pay all the legal expenses for uh, Dreamers who were Hunter College students. And we have a lot of Dreamers at Hunter College. And I just thought, wow, this is this is extraordinary that this school I'm at is so um, active on behalf of its student body. And so I was writing this book, you know, over the last year, four years during the um, Trump um, administration, when my students were in terrible shape because they were facing possible deportation, they were facing, you know, discrimination. It was really, really awful. And I was writing this book and I kept thinking to myself, wow, this is just so interesting because these men of the X troop are so similar to these kids. You know, they're, they're, the X troopers were like 18 years old. So it's the same age. And the X troopers, when they arrive in um, Britain, at first it's okay. But once the war officially breaks out, Churchill does an infamous decree called Collar the Lot. And the idea was that there could be a fifth column of German agitators among the British population. And they decide to claim that all 70,000 German um, uh, Germans who are in the country are, are enemy aliens. And then they decide to lock up in terrible, terrible internment camps, 7,000 of them, mostly single men. And at this point of the 70,000, 55,000 are Jewish because it's German Jewish refugees. And a num in fact, nearly every single ex-trooper, because they're all young men alone, uh, they all get locked up in terrible, terrible internment camps. So what I wrote about for CNN was that because, because these men knew what evil looked like and they knew what fascism was and they knew what danger was, and also because their parents had to make this terrible decision to send them away to save them, they were the ones who ended up being the most crucial fighters on the British war effort because they knew personally what evil looked like and that they were going to fight it. And so as I was writing the book, I was thinking about my dreamer students and we have a 